Mexico, goodbye Canada. Are we looking at the end of a quarter century trade deal or is this just a ploy? My name is Richard Miles, host of 35 West, and here to help us answer that is Luz Maria de la Mora, a trade expert and also serves on the board of the Mexico Council on Foreign Relations, known as COMEXI. Welcome, Ms. de la Mora. Thank you. Very nice to be with you. Thank sure. you. So uh, before we start, uh, it's always interesting for our, our listeners to find out a little bit about the guest. So since it's the first time um, on the show, if you could just tell us a little bit about your, your background. How did you get to be a trade expert? Okay, thank you very much. Well, I worked for the Mexican Ministry of Trade for many years. Actually, I was part of the original NAFTA negotiation uh, Mexican government team. I was assigned to the automotive uh, group that was in charge of negotiating NAFTA provisions at the time. Um, then I also became part of the office of the, the trade office of the Mexican Embassy in Washington D.C. for five years. And then I was appointed the director of Mexico's trade office in the Latin America Integration Association in Montevideo, Uruguay. After that, I was the head of the Mexico's trade mission to the EU, and then I came back to Mexico and I was the chief of unit trade negotiator for the Mexican government until I moved to the Mexican Ministry of Foreign Affairs. There I was in charge of um, economic relations, Mexico's economic relations and cooperation with the world. And after that, I left the government and I started my own consulting company and I do uh, trade policy, trade analysis, trade operations, and I help companies to develop their trade strategies. I am also a professor at University in Mexico called CIDE where I teach trade policy and uh, I follow trade and trade policies uh, in politics and policy throughout the world. You really are an expert. You're not a fake expert like I am. Uh, you know, I, I get to call myself an expert here, but uh, in reality, I'm just kind of a policy guy. But clearly, I'm talking to the right person on this subject. We're recording this on uh, the 29th. Uh, on Monday, uh, President Trump and um, President Peña Nieto uh, had a somewhat strange phone call of live, uh, essentially, in which they announced this uh, agreement of a U.S.-Mexico trade deal which um, hopefully Canada will join. But let's just start at the superficial level. Um, how is this announcement uh, being taken in Mexico um, among, among both the political class, you know, the media, and then also the general public? Is this seen as a, as a big win for President Peña Nieto? And does, does this make López Obrador's uh, life any easier in any way? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, um, overall, we have to remember that the relationship between Mexico and President Trump has been uh, quite adversarial, to say the least. Uh, it has been a very conflictive relationship where Mexico has been at the center of its attacks. And it has Mexico has helped Trump to build a political base. So we have to remember that when he was in campaign and in government, he has um, made NAFTA the center of his attacks. He had um, threatened to withdraw from the agreement if we didn't agree to his terms. And he has already implemented a few measures, Section 201 and Section 232, that have affected very seriously Mexican exports to the U.S. So given that background um, and given the dependence that Mexico has on trade and exports to the U.S., on investment of the U.S., and that um, integration that we have already built in these 25 years, I mean, it's it's very difficult to just say, okay, um, NAFTA can go and we continue our, with our lives. So I think that Mexico has um, been 
or has tried to be extremely pragmatic. And the result that we saw on Monday, um, even if we can say that it's not the best deal and it's probably not a NASA plus, I think that it's overall it's a positive sign to the extent that we are keeping uh, the essence of the agreement, which is um, having rules that allow for uh, trade to happen under certain rules. Probably they're not the rules that we have uh, liked or that we wanted, but there are rules there. So it gives you a sense of where we are headed to. I think that for President Peña Nieto, this is um, a sign that uh, he was able to complete an agreement with a very difficult partner at a very difficult time with a very difficult agenda. And for President López Obrador, who is becoming um, president, he's uh, the elect President López Obrador, who is becoming uh, president, taking office on December 1st, I think that this clears the way to the extent that it uh, eliminates some of the um, uncertainty and the volatility in the market. So overall, I think that it's a good uh, announcement. It's a good um, start for López Obrador. And we still need to see the details. This is only the announcement of an understanding in principle between Mexico and the U.S., but I don't think that this is the end yet. We have to see what happens with Canada. And then we also need to see what are the details. What are the things that Mexico needed to give? What are the concessions that were asked from Mexico? And also, what are the things that Mexico got from this negotiation? Because I'm sure that Mexico got something good, too. Um, you, you make an excellent point about the details. So let, let's talk a little bit about the details, at least the ones that we, we know or we think we know. Um, of course, one, one of the, the largest issues in the U.S.-Mexico negotiations was in the automotive sector, and it focused on raising uh, the, the content, the North American content, from, from 62% to 75%. Um, and the idea, at least from the U.S. point of view and, and President Trump's point of view, is, is he wants to bring back manufacturing jobs uh, back to the United States. And so he thought this was a way to do that. How so, so I've seen a couple of analyses of this. One I think Bloomberg did, another one Wall Street Journal did this morning, sort of looking at sort of car by car that is produced in Mexico, how many automobiles this would actually affect and what sort of decisions are automakers going to make in terms of you know where they produce the vehicles and what they produce. Could you just give us maybe a, a, a brief, your brief analysis based on what we know of, of is this going to be a really big deal for the Mexican automotive sector, or are they going to be able to get through this with just you know relatively minor adjustments in in uh, their production? Okay, um, let me just start by remembering that um, one of the main, if not the most important issue for President Trump in this negotiation was the automotive sector. He wanted to shift production back to the U.S. in order to comply with the job promised to his campaign, to his political base. He also wants to um, reduce the deficit that the U.S. has with Mexico and with Canada, but particularly with Mexico in the auto sector. So he believes that by changing the rules, uh, he will be able to comply with both of his promises to his electoral base. So having said that, we understand that the focus of this um, negotiation was basically how do we bring back U.S. production in the automotive industry to the U.S. And the initial proposal was let's increase the regional content um, from 62.5% to 85% 
And we have to remember that stricter rules of origin normally um, result in reduced competitiveness. Uh, from that 85%, the initial proposal was that 50% should come from the U.S., which was obviously a non-starter from Mexico because it clearly biased production towards the U.S. Uh, after months of negotiations, what we have today is apparently a rule of origin of 75%. And I'm saying apparently because we don't know how this is going to end uh, right. in Congress and if it, this is actually going to be implemented. But apparently what we know right now is that um, for automobiles, trucks, all sorts of vehicles, auto parts, the rule of origin will be 75%. And out of that 75%, 40 to 45% of that has to be procured from areas that pay wages that are at least $16 the hour. So that obviously is translated into the U.S. or Canada, because that right now for Mexico is not possible. Uh, one thing that I would uh, need to, to see is what is the transition period, long will that take? At this time, we're, we're only seeing uh, Mexico and the U.S. We will definitely need Canada in the equation to be able to comply with that um, 75%. Now, the next question is, in addition to the transition period, how do we define that regional content? We don't know. We know that uh, in the original NAFTA, the 62.5% could be um, reach using a traceability list. Uh, I will not go into the details, but there was some flexibility there in order to be able to procure um, some inputs, components, parts from uh, other countries outside the region. And what this rule of origin is trying to do is to um, procure more parts, components, uh, steel, glass, everything from the region, and we don't know necessarily uh, that all companies will be able to procure from here. Apparently, the companies that are, would be ready to comply are the big three, General Motors, uh, FCA, and Ford Motor Company, and Honda and Toyota. The other uh, companies that have established in Mexico to um, serve the U.S. market, we don't know that they will be able to comply. The next step is then, if they don't comply, what will be the, um, uh, the, the tariff that they will have to face? Apparently, there is a cap, a cap in terms of value and in terms of volume. Uh, um, I, I'm not sure what the, the uh, value is. Apparently, I heard it's $90 billion in terms of exports of, of in the whole sector. Um, and then there is a, an apparent cap of 2.4 million vehicles, which obviously um, will make it very difficult for other companies to, um, to export because if you go beyond that cap, then apparently the, 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 the target will be 25% as opposed to the current 2.5% of NMFM. So we are seeing uh, a situation in which we have sort of managed trade, voluntary export restraints like uh, the U.S. negotiated with Japan in the 1980s, and a way of diverting investment from the Mexican market to the U.S. market. And we'll see what happens with Canada, because I think that Canada is an extremely important part of this equation. Well, thank you for that explanation. Well, one thing you me you mentioned that I, I want to pick up on, um, I had assumed that, you, you know, one fallback position for the automotive companies would be, well, you know, we, we're not going to meet that 75% threshold. We're certainly not going to meet the wage threshold. So let's just go ahead and pay the 2.5% tariff. 
But it sounds like, based on what you said, that there is, um, if they violate that cap, they're they're facing really a punitive tariff of, did you say 25%? Is that correct? That's right. Based on the investigation, the 232 investigation that the U.S. Department of Commerce is pursuing right now. I think that that we need to take that into consideration always because I think that that was a credible threat on the part of the Trump administration to Mexico to sit down and uh, nail down an agreement. Um, okay. So I guess we'll have to, to see exactly what regulations come, come out of it. Uh, let's talk a, a little bit about the dispute settlement um, provisions. And, and this is where I'm, I'm not entirely certain based on what I've read, sort of what has remained and what is gone. But it appears like um, at least the, the Chapter 11 provisions of the investor protections, that it, it still will apply to some sectors, but not others. Um, and then my big question, and I, I think I know the answer, but I hope, I hope you'll confirm it for me, is does it still apply to the energy sector? Are, are those um, investing heavily in energy infrastructure, uh, are, are they still... Do they have still available to them these dispute settlement uh, panels? That's right. That's exactly right what you're saying. Uh, what we know from the information that has been presented to us is that uh, it's a reduced uh, ambition of Chapter 11 in the sense that it focuses only on expropriation and it focuses only on certain sectors. Mining, uh, no, mining is not included, I'm sorry. Um, oil and gas, telecommunications infrastructure, transportation. And those are the sectors where um, investors will be able to have access to a dispute settlement mechanism like the one we have already uh, seen in the past. Um, What is very clear in this case is that what President Trump wanted was to disincentivize investment of U.S. companies in Mexico, in in the manufacturing sector specifically. So that's why in this case, the manufacturing industry, the manufacturing plant is out of this question and it eliminates the possibility of having them use the mechanism in case they experience anything really, um, really, um, equivalent to expropriation. So that could actually be a problem for the U.S. Congress. I mean, because the, the U.S. business community obviously is very uh, wanted all of those provisions to stay in. So even if the Mexican government agrees to take them out, it, 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 that could presumably cause some problems in Congress and, and perhaps uh, with Canada as well. I mean, I know uh, the Chapter 19 anti-dumping provisions, those appear to be out of the U.S.-Mexico deal, and uh, Canada will probably have something to say about that. Right. What I have seen regarding Chapter 19 is that it's right now on hold, waiting for Canada to come back to the table. Uh, If there were to be a bilateral between Mexico and the U.S., apparently there's no Chapter 19 included. Uh, If Canada comes back to the agreement, we don't know exactly how this will work out. Uh, Briefly, there were some other provisions that were added that have not been getting as much attention um, uh, intellectual property, uh, the labor and environmental standards were brought into the core agreement. Is this going to be a, a problem for Mexico with compliance, or will it be a political problem for for Lopez Obrador? Well, I think that, I mean, we know some general um, things about what happened, for example, with intellectual property. For example, we know that uh, the protection for biologics in or biogenetics, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the term is in the agricultural sector. Mexico agreed to a 10-year uh, protection period, which apparently is something that 
was extremely important for the U.S. and goes beyond what was uh, granted in TPP. Um, other things like, for example, uh, that common names for Tennessee whiskey, uh, yeah, Tennessee whiskey and bourbon whiskey, the recognition by Mexico and the U.S. recognizing tequila mezcal as um, denomina- not denominations but um, specific terms, specific names. Um, I think that that's part of um, the improvements in the agreement, things related also to um, uh, patent protection. I mean, I think that Mexico um, went uh, beyond, in certain cases, what was given in TPP. We have to see the details. I have not really uh, been able to get the details of the chapter, but apparently the, the patent and intellectual property protection that Mexico offered to the U.S. in this case um, will comply with what um, TPA and the notification to Congress um, was uh, offered by, by the U.S., no, was notified by the U.S. So I think that that is something that, in general, uh, we will have to see how this is compatible with other agreements that Mexico has been negotiating, such as TPP and the European Union. There is a question regarding denominations of origin and geographical indications, specifically regarding cheese. Uh, I hope that the final arrangement between Mexico and the U.S. will not contradict what we have already agreed with the European Union in terms of uh, IGs in in the um, dairy sector. Well, well, thank goodness bourbon and whiskey and tequila and mezcal were saved because otherwise our two countries probably would have <laughs> just ground to a halt. Um, uh, one final one final question, and then I'll, I'll let you go. Um, what does this do to Mexico's relations with Canada? Because, um, as you know, up until a few weeks ago, at least, uh, both Mexico and Canada were publicly were presented a, a common front. They explicitly said they would not negotiate several uh, separate deals. And now, all of a sudden, Mexico has. And and uh, Minister Vida Garay said, I think, yesterday that, well, you know, they really want Canada to come back in. But if they don't, you know, this is going to be this is going to do it for Mexico. Is this is this going to damage uh, Mexican-Canadian relations, at least for a while? Well, it certainly has been a very difficult time for Mexico with respect to Canada, because, I mean, Canada is the number one ally trading partner, political ally, security ally of the U.S. without a question. Uh, Mexico is also um, very dependent on the U.S. market. Um, NAFTA allowed us to become closer and to build an integration and economic and trade relationship. However, each one of us has a very specific agenda with the U.S. Um, I hope that the relationship is not affected. I would definitely understand on the Canadian side that they would be um, upset with the way these things evolved. But I think that Mexico tried to the extent of its possibilities to make Canada part of this. President uh, Peña Nieto, when he talked to President Trump, he mentioned probably four times that this was a trilateral agreement, that we wanted Canada back. President uh, Peña Nieto um, talked on the phone on Sunday, the, the night before this announcement on Monday, 
He talked to Prime Minister Trudeau for a while, uh, trying to explain Mexico's position in this situation. I think that um, overall it may, um, I mean, Canada may not be happy right now with Mexico, and I totally understand why, but I think that it was not Mexico's decision that Canada uh, was not part of this um, stage of the negotiation. We hope that Canada comes back to the to the table and Canada is part of the agreement because otherwise I think that it's going to be extremely difficult for this NAFTA to, or this Mexico-U.S. trade agreement to go through Congress for two reasons. The first one is that the notification that the USTR did last year of of this uh, NAFTA renegotiation was a trilateral agreement. This is a trilateral negotiation. I don't know how uh, you could move from a trilateral to a bilateral in, in, in this process. I mean, I'm not an expert in, in legislative processes in the U.S. Maybe it's possible. But then the next question that I have is um, where would be the votes for an agreement without Canada, because I know that there are many senators and representatives in the U.S. Congress that have said that Canada needs to be part of this equation and that they will not consider having uh, a Mexico-U.S. trade agreement presented to Congress. I don't know if President Trump would really have the votes to approve only a Mexico-U.S. trade agreement. And and I mean, that's something that um, we will see in the future. But right now, to me, it's a question mark. Ms. Delamora, thank you very much for joining me this morning. I feel much smarter. I feel more like an expert. So now I can go and give my own interviews. Thank you very much for joining me. And I hope to have you back uh, on the show at some point. My pleasure. Thanks for the call. 